This podcast is part of the Frederick Podcast Network. Learn more at listenfrederick.com. Welcome to season three of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast with Adina, Brian, Chris, and Steve. The biggest, most fun podcast in the galaxy. This is the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, season three. I have often said that I started watching science fiction when I could reach the unoff knob on our TV set. And the first TV sci-fi series I watched were The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. I loved those series for the stories and the effects. But these were TV series designed for adults with adult themes and episodes that were very scary. For two years after watching The Outer Limits episode, The Xanti Mythics, I would not return to Vasquez Rocks where it was filmed because I knew exactly where the misfits landed their spacecraft. However, in the early 1960s, a program appeared on TV that was sci-fi and was suited for a five-year-old Steve Merkin. And that movie, that TV series was Supercar. Here was a series with puppet characters mixed with high-tech special effects and stories a kid like me could enjoy and I still do. And because of that, I have my supercar right here, which which Jamie is seeing, and I so cherish it very, very much. Nice. Lovely. That wasn't Thank in you. the script, Steve. No, no. That's I just okay. And you I'm have to describe it for the people who, who can't, well, who can't well, see. We, we'll post a picture on, I guess we can do that with Jamie, but supercar... It does. It's not a car. It has no wheels. There's no wheels on it. It's. It was just a. It was a a, a craft that could fly through the air, travel underwater, and go into space. And it basically would skim across the the surface of the Earth if it had to go from here to there. And it was piloted by the brave Mike Mercury. And um, have you had that since the 60s? No, no, no. Okay. I got this. I got this probably about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Because okay. I'm and... looking at all that bright red paint. Oh. And... <laughs> but here, here's the I was, thing. I'm worried for your health. I, that is all you know. No, 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 no. <laughs> the, the thing was, is that the series was seen in black and white and they actually sell the same model mm-hmm. in a black and white version. Oh, wow. To depict of what it was like to watch it back then. So the the creator of supercar and the various super marionation, I'm not saying super marionation TV series that followed, culminating with the Thunderbirds, was the work of Jerry Anderson, father of the person we are interviewing today. Along with Jerry's wife, Sylvia, kids like me could watch exciting sci-fi shows that were not dumbed down or poorly produced. And with that, let me introduce the interviewee for today's installment of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, son of Jerry Anderson, Jamie Anderson. Jamie, please introduce yourself. If you have anything to say before we put you under the grilling light of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, this is your chance to admit your sins or or anything else for that matter how long have you got steve if we're going into sims territory Uh, you've you've got till 9 a.m la time okay (laughs) (laughs) okay i better begin now well what a nice introduction thank you although i'm not sure i agree that uh 
supercar is not scary. I mean, the, the Mike Mercury is certainly not the most handsome puppet character I've ever seen, and I find him <laughs> slightly terrifying, I must say. Well, uh, he was an early version. He's like, right, he's there behind the wheel. He, yeah. he, he was, yeah, he had that square jaw American vigor kind of a guy you know yeah and crazy eyes yes. uh, but no I, I i'm glad that that kind of set you on a path of sci-fi um mm-hmm. early doors so no it's uh, it's just a great pleasure to be having a chat with you um uh, the fact that i'm here through pure nepotism is uh yeah. is a lovely thing so thanks dad for that um <laughs> So no, I mean I'm a I'm a producer, writer, director in my own right, in my own small way. Uh, obviously, in the shadow of of Dad, but you know, doing some different and non-Anderson things, and lots of Anderson things too. And um, yeah, uh, sort of a not so secret Doctor Who fan as well, which Dad described as it being the greatest tragedy of his life. Okay, which, bearing Whoa. in mind, Why? you gotta explain that. Yeah, we got to. Yeah, we got. We got to. Pause there and find out why. Because Doctor Who is big stuff. It it is. I'm even here in the states. My daughter Mm. Jenny, she was watching every episode in succession of the Doctor Who with a friend, and she would they would talk about the episodes back and forth all the time. So it's it's and it's even going back to when I first saw it with Peter Cushing playing the part of Doctor Who. Yeah, that's uh, back been around movies. for a long time. There is a so I'm I'm near the Washington D.C. area, and there is a Who Fest coming up in March mm. around here too. I mean, like yeah, that like they they get their own conventions. If you oh, don't research that well, there might Capital be Doctor Seuss fans that sign <laughs> up for that. I'm just saying. Yeah, no, this is this is this is a doctor. This is Doctor. So Saturday, March March fourth. Um, wow. Yeah, Who Fest twenty twenty three. You should go, Adina. That would be amazing. But, so I mean, I have plans. I can't now. go. I oh, have. I have on. a writer. I'm going on a writer's <laughs> retreat that I'm sponsoring, so I can't okay. miss that. <laughs> Otherwise, Same. I would. I would consider well, doing it. So um, I'm so a semi fan. Yeah. So about Doctor Who, we kind of we kind of jumped in and went on our tangents. What what was the tragedy? What was that yeah. about? <laughs> well, I mean, I think. Uh, so I picked up on Doctor Who, classic Doctor Who, in 1989, and my aunt bought me a VHS tape of a John Pertwee story, Day of the Daleks, um, incorrectly called on that VHS, The Day of the Daleks, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the kind of less successful, possibly, Dalek stories because of budget. But I fell in love with this show, hmm. and um, then my mum facilitated that by buying additional tapes and me realising that the Doctor changed and how could this possibly be? And that this was the most exciting concept ever. Uh, and so I became pretty much obsessed with it. So by the early 90s, the BBC were about to uh, reshow Thunderbirds here and it became a huge hit. Mm. At the same time, they were, they were re-releasing a lot of classic Doctor Who stories. So Dad would go in for meetings at the BBC about Thunderbirds and about the marketing around it. Mm-hmm. And someone from the home video department would burst in in the middle of the meeting with a huge box of Doctor Who VHS tapes and say, here you go, Jerry. These are for Jamie, <laughs> which you could imagine. I, I, I don't know how familiar you are with the setup of, of the channels in the UK, but back back in the 60s, it was the BBC, which was the, you know, the public mm-hmm. service broadcaster. And they mm-hmm. had Doctor Who. And then there was ITV, which is the commercial broadcaster. And people tended to be BBC or ITV households. You know, you grow up and you would either be watching Doctor Who and everything on the BBC, or you'd be watching 
all the all the ITV or ITC shows. Let's not get into that. But yeah. like dad shows, um, like the Persuaders, the Champions, lots of that kind of real mm. classic spy stuff, mm-hmm. particularly spy and sci-fi. Um, so obviously there was a long-standing rivalry between Dad and Doctor Who, and often his shows would be put up against the uh, the Doctor Who episodes in in the schedules. So for a long time, he, and he was kind of he was aiming really high, like you said, Steve. He you know everything that he was trying to do was like make a miniature film with mm-hmm. every episode. Yeah. So you look at Doctor Who with its kind of bubble wrap and slightly wobbly sets and things that maybe don't look so convincing. I think he felt like, hang on, I'm making this amazing premium thing, and my bloody son likes Doctor Who. <laughs> so, yeah, he described that as the greatest tragedy of his life. And having recently made a documentary about his life and seeing just how much tragedy there was in it, hmm. I think he may have over-egged that slightly. <laughs> it's, it's, is, is that the is that the uh, film filmed in Super Marination? Is that the movie no, talking about? No, so Filmed in Super Marination... Yeah, Filmed in Super Marination covers the history of the puppet shows and is fascinating okay. and brilliant in its own right. But it's about the 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 process of how they made the shows and the innovations they made right. and this kind of little cottage industry um we made a, a documentary which was released last year and has just come out uh on dvd and i think streaming in the states um called a life uncharted jerry anderson a life uncharted oh, wow. and that is about his life uh and how how it affected his career for sure but the story mm. of his life from from beginning to end um uh, warts and all, as they say. Let me ask prime, you this prime video. It looks a like prime it's on video? Prime Video here. Oh. It's, yeah, I mean, you have to pay for it, but it looks like it's accessible on Prime Video. Okay, well, or, I, or on I, DVD. I, you can get it in okay. Target, I think, if that helps. So we, oh, we have. Yeah, thank you. Our first endorsement for Target. Let's let's hope Target <laughs> will become a sponsor. Now. <laughs> yeah, come on, Target, get on it. <laughs> well, that brings a, a very interesting question because your mom was Jerry's. Second or third wife? Third wife. Third wife, correct. So when you were born in 1985, mm. it had been nearly 20 years since Thunderbirds appeared on television. Yep. Um, <clears throat> did you sit down and just talk to your dad about those things? Did he ever sit down and discuss? Because, or, you know, again, <laughs> since you you were four years old, we're, we're watching Doctor Who, you might have been sent to your room without dinner because of something <laughs> like that. Can I can I ask a slightly different version of that question sure, too? Okay, go, to, please to do. But yeah. so like yeah, growing up where you know you started out where your your dad had this very famous show. When did you become aware of the show and then when did you become aware that oh my god, my dad made this? Like mm. how did that happen? Even okay. better, thank you Adina. Well, I I can hopefully answer both <laughs> variants of said question. Uh so f- from as early as I can remember, um, we had a shelf of VHS tapes. And on that shelf uh, were Terrorhawks, Thunderbirds. I remember very specifically the cover had um, alligators on it because it was Attack of the Alligators. Although actually I think they were baby crocodiles, but let's not get uh, too pedantic. <laughs> um, you got to look at the teeth. There's a difference yeah. in the team. Oh, is that is that the trick? There you go. Yeah. I did, I've, I've learned something here, well, Brian. Just, thank you. Yeah, it matters yeah. if you're in Florida or Australia. It, it, it also shows that you. it's the last thing you see before it bites your head off, you know? <laughs> oh, look, it has that many teeth. I'm dead. Okay. Well, 
there were there was no maiming of puppets in uh, okay. Attack of the Alligators, not that you saw anyway. Um, but on that shelf too was um, Invasion UFO, which was a kind of cut together eighties TV movie version of UFO. All this stuff, which was just there from the very beginning, and I didn't really know what, what it was. Uh, because they were there eventually, you know, curious kid will put it into the the VHS player and watch. Um, and I I think I mostly watched Thunderbirds and Terrorhawks in those early days. And then at some point, I guess when I was three or four, mum said to me when I was watching one of the episodes, um, you know, your father made this. And when you're three or four, you don't know what that means, do you? You don't know, you know, this stuff just exists. You don't think about the behind the scenes or whatever. So my my interpretation of that was that he had physically made the VHS tape and the case it was in. (laughs) And I was like, I didn't think that was very impressive. Uh, And really... Although I started to become aware of him working, but he was he was making adverts at the time. So when I was I was born, this was just towards the end of the Terrorhawks uh, final series production run, uh, and actually he was in, in a not fantastic place again in terms of producing and finances and that kind of thing. And so he was working a lot on making commercials for Burger King and the Royal Bank of Scotland and uh, several beer brands and various things like that. So he was working in TV and I started to get hints of it. But then it was only when the BBC licensed Thunderbirds and re-showed it. Suddenly I started to become more aware of what a producer was and what that meant. And then I met people who were involved who seemed to know him really well. And I met some of the voice artists at conventions. And suddenly this whole world was opened up, which I still didn't understand really properly for a long time because it is so, so complicated and it's so massive, the workings of making a, a tv show like that mm-hmm. um but yeah it was it was then my friends were watching a tv show that my dad had made and their their parents were getting excited about re-watching a show so somehow it had existed for a long time which i couldn't get my head around so it was a very strange process of a gradual awakening um but then in terms of him talking about work mm-hmm. he avoided it like the plague he didn't he did he he was so desperate for me not to become involved in the industry um i i can't quote exactly what he said to you um uh, because it's just it's yeah it's it's a bit too colorful but um he asked me what i wanted to do and i said i really want to do what you do because this idea of coming up with something in your head and then making it tangible right. so that other people could experience it was just so exciting mm-hmm. um and he said, uh, no, you don't want to do that. You want to think of something else. Uh, and I, he kept asking me over the years. And eventually he he said, well, I think when I was 17, he said, if you try to get into the industry, I will make sure every door is slammed in your face. Wow. Wow. Which when I say that to you initially, uh, it's a bit sort of a visceral like, ouch. But yeah. now, and even, even a few years after that, but certainly now knowing how dad's time in the industry went, it was a not very well couched version of trying to be protective. Well, sure. I've had a terrible time. I don't want my son experiencing the same thing. Now, he didn't explain it that way. He just said, if you try this, no chance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was his position that remained until about 14 months before he died, um, yeah. when he eventually said, well, it's such a shame you didn't get into the family business. And now here I am. Thank you. Uh, nepotism and the passing of time. Well, so did you so did you stay away from the business initially because of of his, because of him? 
So, well, the the last time I was, uh, well, the, the, before that every door was slammed in your face thing, mm-hmm. uh, I would go with him to to work all the time. Mm-hmm. Any opportunity, every school holiday, every mm-hmm. half-term break, if he was working a weekend. I mean, I would be like at the door ready to leave before he was dressed and ready for work. I was, it was that exciting. Um, no. Kind of is a, a bit of a no brainer, I suppose, as a kid going to a film studio when he was working at Pinewood, for example, making a live action show he did in the nineties called space precinct. I was, I was there all the time. Like I was a real irritation, I think to everybody working on that show, but it was just so cool. And I got to sit between Christine Glanville, who was the lead puppeteer for Thunderbirds and all the puppet era stuff and had been working with Dad at that point for nearly 40 years. And Richard Gregory on the other side of me, who was responsible for um, the Tumblr in the Dark Knight, um, uh, walking with dinosaurs. And by that point, I've been working with Dad for probably, say, 15 years. So all this incredible expertise and then this annoying little kid in the middle, the boss's son, oh, we better please him and better be nice to him. But all the stuff that you absorb only fed that excitement. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was constantly going going there. And then, yeah, he kind of made it pretty clear that wasn't going to happen. I focused on sport for a little while. Um, and then I went into a totally different area for a little bit of time. I'm not sure how far we want to go into that because well, what'd you do? What'd you do? <laughs> I'm, see, I'm, now I'm curious. I'm curious. You say that. And... How can, how can I say this uh, politely? Um, uh, I were a were... male stripper. What? I don't know. Go ahead. Well, I think <laughs> it's, it's almost as unusual, I suppose. No, I worked in horse breeding. Oh, okay. Huh. Time. That's... Uh, horse, horse people and in, in my wife's side of the family. So, <laughs> There you go. That yes. can be. Uh, it, it is different because it, <laughs> it certainly it is, is different. different. Yes. Yeah, but he was he was very happy that I was you know carving my own path in this area. But still, in the back of my mind, it's just like I don't you know this is interesting and science is cool right. and it was quite science heavy what I was mm-hmm. doing. <laughs> um, and animals are you know lovely, amazing things to have around mm-hmm. in the world. So that's great. But I just I still wasn't happy and enjoying it and uh yeah it was only in the last little bit of his life that he said it's a shame he didn't join the family business we tried to work on a little bit of a book project together um but by then his dementia was so bad that he couldn't remember what we'd been writing he he was getting confused by plots and stuff so we had to park that so our, our little tiny moment of doing it um didn't really work but actually i knowing the sort of personality he was I'm not sure that we could have ever, ever really worked directly together. Mm. I think that would have caused a lot of butting of heads. <laughs> how, how did you get along with um, his second wife, um, Sylvia? Did 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 you I barely saw her, Steve? To be quite honest, I mean, their yeah. split was so acrimonious; it was yeah. so so unpleasant on both sides. Mm. Um, and... I only saw her in person, I think, once. Wow! So, wow. yeah. yeah first wife i saw her a lot more and we got on very well and she had me around to lunch a few times and you know that would sort of bygones be bygones but as as i think um i'm not quoting any particular member of the family here this is just a general thing but normally i think when there have been three marriages the first and third wives are united by a common enemy aren't they (laughs) so (laughs) Well, I mean, and, and again, you know, it, it, you know, Sylvia had it. that's great. <laughs> <I'm>... 
Interesting, interesting. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> but it was it was interesting because Sylvia was there throughout pretty much all the famous the the TV shows that I knew of or mm. I grew up on Thunderbirds. Yep. Uh, um, Fireball XL five and you know and then and Thunderbirds. I mean, she was you know she was an integral part. She was the voice of Lady Penelope. She yes, indeed. She did so much together that. Um, but the problem is, I guess some, some for some some marriages working together with your spouse just doesn't always uh, pan out. No, and I, <laughs> I, I it's it's strange, isn't it? I don't, and and even having done the the documentary and spoken to lots of people that were there at the time and listened to some very candid audio tapes of him talking about that period, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, everybody tells their own story right mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. the truth is somewhere in the middle if you look at it kind of through squinted eyes and at a certain angle you might find it but you'll never really really know um and you know in the in the documentary we've got stuff of him saying you know very clearly there was a point where this was a great union and then it wasn't uh yeah. and how much the working partnership drove them apart and how much it held them together I, I don't think we'll ever know. Even if you could interview them both side by side, you would never right. really get a true interpretation of that. But yeah, absolutely. She she was a crucial part of it. And I think um depends on your your, your point of view again, right? So uh, that dad's dad's um truth was always that she was not as involved in the creative part as she said she was. Mm-hmm. But I think the undeniable kind of central part of it is actually that she brought a glamour and a public facing willingness and an understanding of humans, mm-hmm. you know, the, the human touch that I think was a really important part of that creative Which partnership. Is... But I, I, you know, you get people on both sides sure. who claim this is the absolute truth. No, this is, but I still, I maintain if they were both on this call now, well, there'd be a lot of shouting and screaming for one thing, <laughs> right, right. but you would be no clear as as to who really did did what. Mm. So okay. one of those kind of magical things that just worked, um, but in what proportions, it's tough to say. Right. Now, Thank now you I so gotta much. say, if I can jump in here and Please do, get Brian. a little personal. My when we uh were Ian reached out to us and we were real excited. And I knew of uh, Thunderbirds. I knew of Space 1999 um, and things of that nature, but I never really dived into it. So I started to, and I have to say, Space 1999, I'm totally fascinated with now <laughs> and um, geeking out on it a little bit. And and my kids and I love the original Thunderbirds and they're just every Saturday morning. Can we watch Thunderbirds? Can we watch Thunderbirds? You know, and I, it's going to be one of those shows. And they're eight and six years old. Awesome. And that's great. Yeah, I mean, isn't that just fantastic <laughs> to think mm-hmm. of shows like Thunderbirds that were way before their times, but still have lasting and were done? It's part of it is good storytelling. Absolutely. And incredible production that was mm. so well done that it just captures their imagination even to this day. And that's that's an amazing legacy of creating art where generation after generation can go back to it. And even if it looks a little older and you know you occasionally can see a clear string 
who the heck cares? It is great fun. And, and it's yeah. what's that? Okay, all the time. Okay. All the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we had I don't know if my kids see it, though. They're so mm. into it mm. that their yeah. imaginations are just running wild. And it's fantastic to see. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, it, it's my four year old. Oh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Adina. I was gonna say my four-year-old knows it as the now the puppet show. So he, he knows that they're puppets, but he still he still really enjoys it and asks to watch the puppet show. Cool. Which yeah, <laughs> similar experience to Brian. I mean, like I I had seen it, you know, in reruns as a kid. So I, I do have some, I mean, not specific, specific memories, but if anyone yeah. at any time said Thunderbirds, mm-hmm. I know exactly what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so in preparing for this interview, yeah, we we were watching it. What I was amazed is my my husband, who is usually the really picky one doesn't like to watch anything older than a few years ago. He, he mm. very much is a modern audience and wants the modern stuff. He was into it. And wow. he really mm. like, and I was, I was like, I, I went into it thinking he's going to hate this, mm. <laughs> but no, he really enjoyed it too. So him and the kids, we all, you know, yeah. So I was, it was amazing that it's holding up yeah. to a variety. And my kids just, you know, or I've got a 12 year old and a four year old. And the four-year-old knows it as the puppet show, but he likes it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. but, but think of it, you know, people who watch the Muppet show, okay? Mm-hmm. Oh, I was I was a total Muppet when the Muppets uh, were on. Mm-hmm. I was I was a Muppet waka, kid. Waka, waka. Yeah. So, yep. so here's the thing. We all know it's someone's hand in a puppet, mm. but the puppet itself becomes alive. We had a, mm-hmm. a gentleman on uh, Mike who, who, uh, who was uh, a who still is a um, a uh, special effects, not a special effects, he's a prop man. Michael and he Moore. would say, Michael Moore, thank you. And he would do, he would go to events and have puppets. And he would say how the audience wouldn't look at them working the puppets. They mm. would look at the puppets. And so, again, the same thing with Superbird, excuse me, with Thunderbird and Supercar and, and so on. Yeah, we know they're puppets, but they become alive. Yes. And I think maybe it was the fact that the ability that the lip sync was right and the characters, yeah, they, you know, had that funny walk to them, but everything that they did. You know what, though? Do do you remember in Jamie, you probably are very much, but I remember watching it was either the first or second episode of Thunderbirds. And every now and then when they needed to pick up something with their hands, it would be a real human hand. (laughs) Like brilliant. Like, you know, my kids couldn't tell the difference. But I was like, oh my gosh, how brilliant is that to add that sense of realism in that shot? And then all the detail with all the models, Mm -hmm. the the landscapes, um, Mm. the explosions. I mean, you know, of course, you know, when you see their hands, they're, you know, they're you know, whatever, you know, just yeah. rigid the whole time. And, claws, yeah. But I remember seeing the human hand and I'm going, that's just what a brilliant idea to do that for that little part of that scene. Just to ugh. gives it gives it realism. It makes it like, well, you know, they're, yeah. maybe they really are alive. Maybe they really can move, you know, really, Steve, does it do that for you? I mean, the human hand. I was six years old. OK, so it was. OK, really OK. Possibly be, OK. I Back think you then. meant right now. But... But, no, okay. no. Now uh, I, I think I've come to grips with the fact that they're not alive. Okay? They're, they're not alive. Real they're human not. hand grips. Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. I mean, the the puppets are really interesting one because we have pitched new puppet shows to streamers broadcasters over the last few years, and the resistance to them is immense. It is immense. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about the timelessness of the complete world of Thunderbirds being the the puppets and the fact that everything is made for them at this scale, the miniatures being so detailed and the way they're filmed and all that stuff is, is beautiful. But there's something about puppetry which I maintain, but it is an uphill battle to do something new with is puppets. It, is it... I, I would imagine that a show with puppets is actually more expensive than animation or even live action, and that could be part of it. Is that doesn't have to be price actually? The you know where we budgeted, they're they're pretty similar. They're pretty hmm. similar, but okay. it's there's a there's a big cultural aspect, right? Because so you mentioned the Muppets, so hmm. I would say generally speaking, North America as a whole is much less culturally used to human characters as puppets than other places around the world. Mm, so uh, across that's, Asia, that's, makes sense. Yeah. across Asia, certainly in the UK, maybe across Europe, human characters as puppets have been a big thing for decades, maybe centuries, mm. probably definitely mm. centuries. Whereas in the US, it's always non-human characters. And if they are human characters, dare I say Team America, <clears throat> then oh, uh, yeah. they are <laughs> figures of comedy. It's not something that can be taken seriously. Now, I would say Thunderbirds well, the- takes itself quite yeah. seriously i was gonna yeah. say the, t- the two old men in the oh, oh what's their names I'm, I'm blanking on their names in but... the muppets yes you're two right. grumpy old guys who i also yeah, can't they're, remember they're massive caricatures of yes people they're not re- they're not meant to be real people and but i remember no. i remember my dad cracked up at those old men like every, yeah every, we 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 were glued to the i mean that was one of the first television shows i remember watching when i was a young Me kid too. at the end of the 70s yeah yeah so but so they are there they exist in in the in Mm -hmm. the sort of pop Mm -hmm. culture but they are figures of comedy Mm -hmm. so if you try and take drama it doesn't work but at at the center of it for me is i think puppetry taps into something evolutionary as in uh you know humans or whatever equivalent Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of years ago walking through a forest if something around them exhibits consciousness you are drawn to it it's a kind Mm -hmm. of you know there's a tiger in the bush, mm. that kind of thing. If there's mm. something around that might be conscious, it could be a threat to you or it could be a friend to you. Mm. And uh, my theory is that the puppetry connects that part of you. So you see consciousness given to something which should not be conscious. And so it, it grabs you. And that's the moment when you're watching Thunderbirds where initially you might be like, oh, this looks strange. Oh, they're puppets. But within 30 minutes, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, you forget what you're watching and you're mm-hmm. you're involved with this consciousness that's displayed. But uh yeah, that's my, why is my that theory. different why is that different though than animation? Ah. So the other the other side of it I think is um perfect imperfection or the perfection of imperfection being when something is animated, there is a regularity to it. No matter how you try and do it, there is, you know, because it's it's frame by frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's human trying to create something either stylized or even realistic. If you try to create movement, which is realistic, it will automatically not be realistic because uh, physics is just too complex. Mm-hmm. So you, the moment you see something real acting under real world physics with those moments of imperfection, I think it connects in a different way. Not saying one is better mm-hmm. than the other. But I, I think it, it it is that difference. And I've seen eye tracking studies of, of more recent film elements and where you have mm-hmm. a shot which <laughs> combines practical and VFX, the human eye is spending most time on the practical part of the shot. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that is just it's it's the bit that you're most used to seeing. You know, your brain's doing 
millions of calculations every every second, every minute, and you're attuned to seeing stuff that is is normal. So you're kind of almost like parking your your understanding the real world to watch animation or anything which is not real and tangible. Whereas I think you're more involved potentially mm. with with physical tangibility and and that imperfection of of movement. Mm. Interesting. One, one thing you said. Jamie, what's interesting is, if I'm not mis misunderstanding, is you're saying how U.S. audiences do not respond to the puppets as well as they are in the Europe or in Asia, correct? Mm. Yes. But then there was so that's the interesting thing because in Thunderbirds, in Supercar, mm. even in uh, Fireball. The characters are Americans. Yeah. The main characters are mm -hmm. Americans, and all the characters in Thunderbirds were all named after the original Mercury astronauts. Yeah. So it really was designed for a U.S. audience yep. that we could relate to it because, hey, there are Americans on the uh, playing these characters. Which always, when I was a kid, going, why aren't they British? The only two British character was Lady Penelope and her driver Parker, or other people they might run into. So it really was he was going for an American audience. But then, as I recall, Thunderbirds died because there wasn't going to get a renewal for U.S. distribution. Mm. Was that correct? Yeah. So the, the driving factor, as is so often the, the case in entertain, entertainment, is, oh, well, the U.S. is the biggest market. So we best cater to them. So there's a real he there was a, particularly in the 60s. Sorry. Lou, Lou Grade. <laughs> That's OK. We forgive you. Uh, it's the, <laughs> Lou, Lou Grade, who was he heading up ATV, the company that uh, that funded all the production of this stuff. <clears throat> he was saying to, to dad and the team, we got to sell this in America because it's such a big market. So instantly the the commercial requirement is there to make it appeal to americans and the feeling was then and i'm sure remains now that an american audience is more open to what appears to be an american made show mm -hmm. and american characters i think that's was waning a little mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. uh, but that was the feeling and probably still is mm -hmm. for most yeah. people so there was a commercial aspect but there was also for dad i think there was a believability and um a glamour aspect and he he always said that if you have a news announcement about some you know amazing moon based moon headed mission launching from Cape Canaveral or whatever, it sounds very grand and real, and there's a there's a, a glamour and a shine that comes with announcing that about the U.S. If you say, um, "Yep, the British Space Agency is launching a new rocket from Slough tonight," there's Slough. Every kind of British location name. And the British delivery of it automatically downgrades it. You know, we're kind of quite a self-deprecating culture. Um, mm. And his feeling is that it feels more real. It feels mm. more grown up, bigger, better to make this American. Um, USA, USA. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it is, It's there's a kind of self-cheering thing. Yeah. And I don't say that negatively in the slightest. But again, you know, he, he, he had a trip out to LA years and years ago, decades ago. <clears throat> and... In the cab ride, when he was going through uh, from LAX to wherever he was staying, the 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 driver was like, "Oh, one of our greatest uh, actors lives just up that street. I met him in a bar once. He's such a great guy." And over there, uh, you know, it, every, every landmark was about how some successful person from LA had been and how brilliant, and how well respected they were. If you get into a cab in the UK, 
the cabbie's going to be going, you know, saying, "Oh, I had that, you know, Ray Winston in the back of my cab the other day. Oh, what a what an horrible bloke, so miserable." <laughs> we we just have that natural way of wanting to take the Mickey or be a bit rude about people. So again, it didn't kind of fit with the whole American vibe. So you can see so, where in his mind, the glamour, the big scale stuff was in the U S. Okay. But yeah, I, I would say, you know, people shouldn't take um, their, their experiences in LA as, <laughs> as their experience that they would have no anywhere else in the country. <laughs> True. I, I'm not saying he correctly translated his experience, but no, no, no. I, I believe his experiences sounds correct for a visitor coming into LA. I'm just mm-hmm. saying, take that cab in New York. And right. it's going to be a wholly right. different experience. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, I don't live in Hollywood. I live in North Hollywood. Okay. So <laughs> you know, we're all, but it's interesting, you know, it's uh, yeah. What you just said is that, you know, we, we, we oversell things here in the States. It's, it's such a big deal, you know, but again, you know, growing up in the sixties in the space program, it was glamorous. It was Absolutely. exciting. Hey, it's still you know? glamorous today. The new, the, the new stuff is, is just as, just as, just as good. If not, I know better. we, 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 we just <laughs> had an astronaut on our show. Who oh, that's with cool. Adina, and he was, Rick was super charming, super funny mm-hmm. and a sci-fi fan. And it, it, to me as a kid who, you know, meeting an astronaut that's like i said that was a big Mm -hmm. deal to be able to do that so you know i can see why your dad directed that towards an american audience but then after that the shows really were centered more all on english characters and so on right the other puppet shows and other things he did i mean after there was always an american lean and they're mm-hmm. always being mindful of of selling to a US audience because that was the the kind of the gold. But I think he was less taken with that. So yeah, in the next show after Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet mm-hmm. got a British lead, but US co-lead, I guess, or Canadian uh, yeah. co-lead. Um, Joe ninety, well, that was very heavily British. Didn't do so well. The Secret mm-hmm. Service, which you may or may not know, very very one. quirkily British about a priest who's a secret agent and who confuses yeah. his enemies by speaking gobbledygook i mean it's it was crazy uh, and that was the least successful of all and then you make the leap into live action with ufo again ed bishop canadian lead are kind of uh, you know the voice of the the u.s and kind of more although u.s uk based was mm-hmm. supposed to have u.s appeal and then space 1999 where they were they were going okay this is big budget we need american leads Mm-hmm. Also, Landau, Barbara Bain, they were the ones yeah. that kind of were there to sell it. And so so space did sell then, uh, sell well in the States. And, it, you know, Supercar, Fireball XL5 and Space 1999, I think, seem to be the, the shows that are best known in the US. I don't think I, I, you know, when I first got exposed to Space 1999, it was when I was in high school, when all we had on TV was Star Trek Next Generation. So I was looking for like <laughs> other science fiction, like where can I find, you know, this was yeah. still back when we only had a couple, t- you know, a handful of channels. So it's not like it is today where it's easy to find. And so I'd heard about Space 1999. And I think I had picked up some videotapes at a convention. And that's it. But I, I don't know when I, I learned it was a British show. Oh. I, I certainly didn't know. Well, see, at the time, though, I don't think. I knew or cared <laughs> if something was American versus British versus what, you know, yeah. like, I don't think I, yeah, I don't think I knew or cared. I just wanted mm. good science fiction. That was really all I, it's still really all I care about, but today, you know, I, I, I appreciate the subtleties and the difference in the cultures and the comedy and everything. Mm. And, you know, but yeah, I don't think at the time I knew. 
or cared. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, but I guess the audience probably didn't care so much, but yeah. the buyers often did. Sure. Mm, yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. so because I am, Steve has this question here for you. Um, but I'd like to ask it, Steve, if that's okay. Um, because <laughs> yeah, I'm going to choice, am... Steve. He's doing it anyway. Right here we go. <laughs> uh, what are you going to do? So, uh, I I am a big Jonathan Frakes fan uh, from Star Trek. Okay, so I I I had no idea that mm. there was an American version mm. of Thunderbirds <laughs> until I saw this question. Okay. Yes, bro. Judging by your reaction, it must be bloody awful. <laughs> it must be terrible. <laughs> so I'm now asking I'm you. I'm asking you, Mr. Ooh. Anderson. Out mm. of should I even bother? Should anyone bother with that? Mm -mm. Or is is there? You, you know what I mean. Wait a second. Wait a second. I maybe I didn't understand. And if the you question. and if you say when we're done recording, please edit this question out. I'll be more than happy to do that. <laughs> no, no, but, this is fine. Wait, so, Jonathan Frakes directed that. That's yes, what, that's he directed. I, I didn't. I don't think I got that. Two thousand and four. Oh, yeah. that was okay. Oh my God. When is that so, in correlation? When is that in correlation with when First Contact came out? Because First Contact is <clears> mine and Steve's eight favorite. Eight star trek film it was eight years Be between after space between eight years after he made first contact okay he did. so because that came out in 2004 so yeah, yeah. Okay. what did your dad think of that lovely production okay i need to be very careful here <laughs> Remember, we said about the effing, okay? No, <laughs> no not because I'm going to turn the air blue, but just so. And this is also, you know, this is not. Uh, there's no um, uh, NDA or any any threat from lawyers <laughs> hanging over me yet. There may be after this. No, there won't be. Uh, so, they had tried to make a Thunderbirds film of some sort for many years. It had been pitched from the early 90s when it had this big resurgence in the UK and across the rest of the world. And it was, you know, generating millions in toy revenue. And suddenly, of course, that is very commercially exciting. And so various scripts were written. There was a script written about the hood, the the the, the main nemesis of international rescue in Thunderbirds, trying to, to build a giant moon-based, vacuum cleaner which was going to suck out the atmosphere from the earth unless something i mean mm -hmm. things which weren't, weren't really in the spirit of the show then eventually working title in universal put together a script uh, which was rewritten several times and um <clears throat> then they got the green light to do it uh, dad heard that this was happening and had a meeting with working title and uh working title were very nice at the lunch and said, you know, we're looking at creative consultants, Jerry, and obviously it would make sense to bring you on. And, you know, I can happily, my team will send you a copy of the script, all this sort of stuff. And they had a nice lunch. And then a few days later, dad got a letter from working title saying, hey, Jerry, thanks for lunch. Um, we've decided we've actually got enough creative people on the film, so we won't be requiring your services. Oh, man. So you can imagine for the kind of the, the creator, that's quite a kick in the... Um, yes. Yeah, in the sensitive parts. So he was not very happy about this. Um, and according to him in an interview, um, which we've got, he he says that Working Title and Universal told people that he was going to be on the production in order to secure them to work on it. 
I don't know how true that is, but that Mm -hmm. is his, that is his recollection of events. Now, the other thing we've already mentioned, the acrimonious breakup with Sylvia, Sylvia was employed as a creative consultant on the 2004 film. So there's another kick straight Mm. uh, in the soft bits. Uh, so he he was not very happy. How about many family this. friendly acronyms? Or, or it, we, we, can we you can call that? it you can call it the banger and mash if you'd like. I'm going <laughs> <do it. laughs> yeah. to teach my kids the soft bits because they're my son is constantly walking up to me. Hey, Dad. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> and then you'll you'll understand his experience of uh, yeah. the the yes. uh, wo- wounded twig and berries, shall we say? <laughs> uh, I can't. Go, there's no more. I'm not doing any more. Anyway. <laughs> So he was feeling very, very wounded by all this stuff. And then I think he just kind of thought, well, I can't do anything about it. I'm out. Uh, you know, there's nothing I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Waited for the film to come out. And then he heard on the grapevine that um, the early audience reactions and reviews were less than fantastic. <laughs> Much less than fantastic. Uh, and again, I'm drawing this from an interview we have with him and I have nobody to verify this information. So I'm paraphrasing sure, from sure. an interview. He then said that he was contacted by Universal, not working title, because I think the partnership there had obviously been difficult after they rejected him. Universal (laughs) said, hey, Jerry, we'd love you to come along to the premiere. um, And uh, if you will come along and maybe do some interviews and stuff, then uh, we'll we'll pay you some money for your time. And they they made an offer of some money. The reports of that amount of money vary quite drastically. Uh, but uh, allegedly it was about two hundred and fifty thousand mm, dollars. Wow. He said, no, thanks. Um, which <laughs> was surprising. Uh, then they came back to him and said, I tell you what, if you, if you just turn up, <clears throat> don't have to say anything nice. You can just turn up to the premiere, be photographed. Here's another check that might be more to your liking. Wow. And allegedly that was doubled to half a million. Now, wow. mum says she was never aware of such a check. Because either it would have been, in her words, so small it wouldn't have mattered, or so large it would have had to have been banked. But I have three other people that were working with Dad at the time that verified that wow. story. Dad refused. Um, and I, I can tell you at that time, um, he really could have done with that money. Mm-hmm. Would have would have made things a lot easier. But in his words, he, he's got scruples. So mm-hmm. he wouldn't do that. Um, when he did eventually see it, he, and I'm now directly quoting, said it was the biggest load of crap he'd ever seen in his life. <laughs> now, I don't think we can blame Jonathan Frakes for this entirely or even necessarily in part. And mm. on the plus side, there is a whole generation of kids that were introduced to Thunderbirds by that film. Mm-hmm. The problem for older fans was that film was not really Thunderbirds. It was Spy Kids in a Thunderbirds wrapper. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I and I think this uh, kind of sits at the center of failed reboots or reboots that don't connect with the audience. Is often where the people behind it are doing it purely from there's a commercial opportunity here, yeah. mm-hmm. and not from point of view of this is such a timeless thing. We've got to do it again, but, you know, better. And how can we kind of imbue this with the spirit of the original while while bringing something new? And that's a really hard thing to do. But I feel like that missed it so badly. Um, I watch it very, very occasionally. It's it's still broadcast here on one of our um, commercial channels. And uh, there's, there's like fight scenes where they've got comedy 
kind of boing sounds and stuff mm-hmm. in this live and it we've already talked about thunderbirds took itself quite seriously there was drama mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff and yes there's drama but they kind of go oh let's put the kid at the center of the action and all this stuff which doesn't fit with the original show because yeah. so many of those original shows were inspirational and aspirational as in i could be a tracy brother one day i could be what you know that they they're kind of adults ish they're young adults i could mm-hmm. be that could be me i could be virgil tracy i still think that now sometimes mm-hmm. maybe um yeah. but the minute you say let's put a kid at the center of the action as the access point i think that begins the kind of house of cards tumbling down so there's a massively overlong explanation of my That's, view of thunderbirds 2004 it's no <laughs> oh go ahead Adina. i was gonna say that is because i remember um because I remember when it came, and I'm, I'm right now. I'm having like a, a massive brain. Like I did not know that Jonathan Frakes directed that because mm. I, I never think of him doing anything outside of Star Trek. <laughs> so even if I had like seen it oh. on a list, I probably like didn't think of it because I remember like watching Thunderbirds because it was the same year that there was like another puppet movie that came out, Team America. Mm. Yes, and I remember just it being kind of like. There's uh, two puppet movies coming out, and one is related to an old, what, what? What's this Team America thing? And Team America was meant to be an over-the-top comedy, like along the lines of like South Park, but like more and more. You know, like it was meant to be a comedy. So I remember like there being a lot of confusion of these two movies, and not and I and I don't remember particularly enjoying Team, even though I like comedy a lot and I, I like mm. the overdub. I remember not liking Team America too much oh. either. That yeah. would have been music to dad's ears, Adina, because he didn't <laughs> like it either. <laughs> I think so, your dad and I would have gotten along swimmingly, except for <laughs> I do enjoy Doctor Who. I just, I don't, it just, it's a, it's a commitment to watch it over the years. So I just, I'm not as into it we, just because I have not been able to I, focus. I got to Jamie in Columbus, Ohio, go to GalaxyCon, and Jodie Whittaker was there. And uh, she was one of the doctors, right? And yep. she was absolutely fantastic, charming. She, I, I saw William Shatner. I saw John Delancey. Uh, who else? Uh, several other people. Gates McFadden was fantastic. Terry Farrell. But she was my favorite because she oh. just, she just, and I do not, I have not, she makes me want to get into Doctor Who. She was just so oh, fantastic. Great. How she, she's a true fan of the show too. Um, and yeah, I don't know. That's all I have to say. I know there's really no point other no. than she's fantastic. And... She had the, the British charm. She, oh my I, goodness. Yeah. She had people, she had people eating out of her hands. She was so <laughs> charming. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, she definitely got a, a, a Northern English warmth, which I'm sure, uh, must translate very well, um, mm-hmm. across the pond. I, Brian, my brain is on hold. The actress that played, or Adina, the actress who played the board queen in uh, First Contact, the actress's name Alice is... Alice Krieger. Yeah. Alice Krieger. When I went to my first Star Trek convention, she was there. And when she spoke with her beautiful British accent, it was like, wow. Mm-hmm. That's the board queen? Yeah. This woman <laughs> is so classy and so... She's so so gentle and how she played this very vicious character just shows, you know, we, you, you know, there, there's good. that British <laughs> British charm that just takes over someone. We are it's... all classy and gentle, Steve. We yeah. learn it at school, so absolutely. <laughs> it all, it all... 
That's our everything problem I know... in America. We're, we don't learn that in school, I think. Well, yeah. it's because some of us, all we know about British culture comes from watching Monty Pythons. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, over I, I, I over would say it's not necessarily no. 100% representative, <laughs> particularly either. of modern Britain. But You yeah. want to go back? You want to go backwards, Adina? Go backwards mm-hmm. to the Goon Show. That, that was, one. oh, that was Spike Mulligan, Harry Seacum, and Peter Sellers. And they were on radio, and they made a movie called The Bed Sitting Room. Uh, and it's, you want to see the basis, the origination of British comedy, pub humor? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to watch The Goons. It's just genius. And Peter Sellers did all these different voices on it. One particular episode, he couldn't work because he was sick. They had to hire eight different actors to replace all the voices that he could do on the show. So if you love Monty Python, mm-hmm. you got to watch The Goons. That's even better stuff. Will, uh, I'll add it to the increasingly long list of things. Oh, yes. to... <laughs> More homework for you. Yes. yes. So here's a question I have for you, uh, Jamie, which is when did you become the torch carrier? Yeah of thunderbirds of your dad's work and things like that when you started anderson i guess is it anderson entertainment is that correct dad dad founded anderson entertainment himself in uh 1999 so it's been around for a little while um but you've taken it over haven't you yes yeah yeah and i I took over in 2014 technically um so i mean even in the in the days around his his funeral, <laughs> Mum and I were talking about what to do, and you know she she said, "Oh well, we might as well just wrap everything up and and forget it." Um, and in the days around his death, um, we'd had so many messages from people, and you know he'd had a huge amount of n- news coverage and so much positivity. There was just something in me that said, "Well, this you know this this stuff means something to a lot of people," mm-hmm. and really because of the way the rights situation had been has been and still is to some degree the ownership of the shows was all over the place different parties there was no no one place kind of saying this is the umbrella of anderson you're all welcome in you'll find something under here that you like and you may like all of it so it kind of became my mission to bring as much of the ip as many of the brands under Mm -hmm. our control or strong influence as possible so that we could say all this stuff is is Anderson, you know, in the same way that all of that stuff is Marvel or all of that stuff is Star Wars or all of that stuff is DC, whatever it is, mm-hmm. these kind of shared collections of brands, whether they live in the same universes or multiverse or whatever or not, mm-hmm. there's still an essential kind of spirit that runs through them, which means the chances are people will will like them. So the, the mission has been really to do that. It's to kind of complete things that he didn't complete. So that mm-hmm. book series that I mentioned much earlier on that he and I tried to work on, we had that completed in uh, in the early days, 2014-ish. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of other stuff which we are we are still working on because doing anything big takes a long time and there are a lot of roadblocks and a lot of people who um, uh, say things that they don't mean. Uh, I was trying to uh, tread very carefully around the mm-hmm, BS mm-hmm. word there. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it just became a, a very natural thing to do and it's just evolved over time. And the the more we do it, the more messages we get from people saying, 
this means a massive amount to me. In fact, this morning we've had two two emails come in, uh, one from um, New Zealand uh, and one from the UK from fans who basically say, wow, this all means so much. Thank you for keeping it around and keeping it available mm-hmm. because I'm reconnecting with my childhood. You know, I'm I'm finding kind of shelter from rough stuff that's going on in my world Mm -hmm. uh, by revisiting this and finding comfort in stuff from years gone by, but also saying, oh, wow, I watched Thunderbirds when I was a kid in, you know, 1992 or whatever. And I had no idea about UFO or Space 1999 or Space Mm -hmm. Precinct. And they find out about those shows. So in many ways, I hope, without having stuff that's being broadcast right now, that Anderson fandom and the passion for it is actually one of the strongest points it's been for for many years Mm -hmm. which is an amazing thing bear in mind that dad passed away 10 years ago and there hasn't been a new anderson production since 2005 Mm -hmm. um, which was his his cgi reimagining of of captain scarlet so Mm -hmm. it that's a lovely thing and the feedback is the thing that kind of keeps us going and the, the stories i hear of what the shows mean to people because that emotional connection doesn't come about very easily. And there's, pe- there's people making new shows and stuff all the time and desperately trying to use every trick in the book to get the audience to connect. And it's really hard to do. So t- nurturing that feels very, very important to me. Well, here in the States, you know, the three of us, and if Chris was here, there'd be the four of us, are all massive Star Trek fans. And the son of you of Gene Roddenberry, Rod Roddenberry, Yep has been doing so much to move the Star Trek story forward and has done so much in, you know, advertising and product supplying and, and just being involved in the production of the various new TV series that appeared. Um, I, I kind of feel that that's kind of what you're trying to do as well, is that you're trying to be that, you know, the next generation of keeping something alive that means so much to older folks, older folks like me who watched it when we were first on TV, you know. I, I didn't and say that, Steve. You said that. I just did. And I, I'll say this. It's a, here's, here's a weird thought. When my grandson was born, my daughter did not tell us his what his name was going to be. And when she was born, she said his, na- his first name is Parker. Believe me, what's the first image that popped into my head? Roy! Uh-huh. Yeah, no, way, a, yeah. The big well, nose that's and, the uh, first, yeah. yes, and the bulgy eyes, and the first thing it popped in my head, and so I started calling him Mister Parker, <laughs> and yes, he is a he is a handsome young lad. He does not look anything like the character, <laughs> but that's a really that's that's the connection that it has is that that word that name automatically yeah. takes you to something that means something when you were a kid growing up. And still means something to me now as an older adult growing yeah. old. It's still, you know, it just, it, 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 there's youth to it, you know? And, and I think the feel that's how we feel about Star Trek is that, yeah, it, it would, it happened, you know, 1966 when it first started, but there's still some, you know, there's a real youth to it that makes you feel good, you know? And I think that's, you know, as, as the Dean is now, you know, really discovering it more and, and her kids are, and now Brian's kids are discovering it now. Yeah, that it's really timeless. That it's yep. never, it 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 hasn't aged bad poorly. It's aged very very well. And you're helping 
to reinvigorate that life into it once more. Well, thank you. I hope so. And thanks for watching it and introducing it to, to your kids, because that mm -hmm. kind of indoctrination is absolutely essential. Yeah. So yeah. please mm -hmm. continue. Um, yeah, I mean, d d so Dad and Gene Roddenberry met um, and shared, I believe, most of a bottle of whiskey in his office at Pinewood. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, oh, that'd be great. <laughs> I imagine if there was a recording of that conversation, mm -hmm. it would have been great. But I think mm -hmm. I think they share something in that, you know, from from a particular era, they were painting a relatively utopian future mm -hmm. where people were helping other people, exploring places with good intent and coming up against drama and all that sort of stuff. But there's there was something very, very similar. And even, I mean, mm. Space 1999, if you replace the moon with the Enterprise, uh, give them a bit of control, you're kind of not far off anyway. It's very similar, mm -hmm. similar setup and feeling and a fascination with the rest of the, the universe. Um, and in fact, the, in the the documentary, um, In a Life Uncharted, we we set the scene, I'm a spoiler for the first few minutes, but we set the scene with a, um, a story uh, Dad said about where his fascination with science fiction and space came from. And it was from his brother who, when, he, when Dad was a kid, said, imagine you could live forever, you're in a vehicle that could fly, you know, whatever, as fast as it possibly can, and you never run out of fuel and you start flying in a straight line at some point, surely you must come to the end or the edge of the universe. And if so, what is beyond that? Mm -hmm. And it's that, that kind of massive <laughs> thinking, I think, which made him feel so small and was so excited by what was out there that you get that fascination, which really culminates in terms of its exploration of the depths of space with with space 1999 <laughs> um and also i guess that they're they're all kids of kind of wartime as well so there's this mm. this darkness and this repression and this restriction of life which then sets you up to explore in a more positive way and i think we can all do with a bit more positivity right. uh yeah. in entertainment i'm so bored of dystopian science fiction mm -hmm. you know it doesn't need to be dystopian mm -hmm. to be exciting and dramatic and to draw you in you can have it on a or a canvas that's more positive and get involved Absolutely. in the the individual drama. There's always going to be something, some faction, some person, some group causing problems. Um, but does it have to be so miserable and depressing? Right. I don't think so. It does not. You know, you know, thinking about your your dad and Gene Roddenberry having conversation, you know, it would be really interesting. And if you do do this, do it in front of some cameras and a microphone. It'd be mm. great for you and Rod Roddenberry to have a conversation because you wow. guys have a similar shared experience of being, you know, you know keeping the torches uh, on the. So we we yeah. have done this, believe oh, it or okay. not. In okay. fact, if you saw me looking down earlier on, it wasn't because I was being mm. rude. Well, I was, but it was actually because <laughs> I was I was looking for the photos of me and Rod uh, okay. from this event many years ago in um, Washington State, mm -hmm. Alexandria, I think it was. Um, uh, and we did a panel, Rod, me, and um, uh, oh, Adam Nimoy. Okay. Oh, wow. oh yeah. Wow. Uh huh. Okay. Um, which, yes. So I, we gotta go. Is that on? That's gotta be like no, on YouTube. No, it's or nowhere. It was never oh, recorded. Oh, oh so you gotta God. have to do a redo because now that everything's recorded, <laughs> well, you guys need to do I'm again. not. I'm not sure they'd redo it because you know you were talking about British sense of humor and British comedy. Yeah. I made a joke before we went on stage, uh -huh. which I thought was really funny and tongue in cheek and they didn't. Oh. So I'm not sure <laughs> they would be willing to do that. Um, what was the joke? Can you tell us the joke? I can, but I just, just going to say I was, tr I was trying to make light of the situation yeah. and I was trying to kind of 
build in some um, camaraderie and humor around, as you say, a shared mm-hmm. experience. And we were literally waiting in the wings being introduced on stage. And I said, hey, they should have called this panel the Dead Dads Club. Oh, <laughs> Ooh. Now I get it. Yeah, see I get the variety it. Yeah, of yeah. reactions. I get from it, you guys. Well, I'm I'm trying to. Yeah, no, no. See, I I also think it's funny, but I get why that <laughs> did not. Because I was like that, you know. I yeah. Anyway, it was it was meant in the spirit of let's be positive and silly about this. It's not going to be right. a dour yeah. thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it it uh, particularly Adam was not amused. Um. Uh. So, but it, it was fine after that. Right. You know, Rod and I had a, we had a tour around NASA Goddard, and you know we're walking around chatting, and then we went to see. I think they. I can't. Where is the the museum? I'm thinking of that. Must so be the, you're so you're there. talking. You're in my area. So that that would have been my area. So you're okay. talking about the, the Smithsonian. Smithsonian. They were. The big, they, yeah. They mm-hmm. literally just unveiled the the refurbished Enterprise. Okay, so that oh, would wow. be at the the Air and Space Museum down. Yeah, so that was cool. I went with Rod to mm-hmm. to see it, and he hadn't seen it. Oh my uh, god, re- refurbished. Yeah. So that was a kind of that was a That's kind of cool, cool experience. Yeah, so that is exactly so. Some I, I've learned as I've gotten older because I I I love humor and everything. That is what mm. you just said. That is exactly the kind of joke that my instinct would tell me to make, but that mm. my age is to tells me to if I don't know the individuals personally <laughs> well. I can't do that. Yeah. Yes. No, 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 so I, that's told me to I would have said the same. I might've said the same thing. I want to, I want to <laughs> get back. I, I think it's really cool that you saw that original hero model enterprise with mm. Rod. That's super cool. Yeah. And again, I want to get personal uh, is the first time I saw that in the Smithsonian, I could care less about all the real history that's there. <gasps> I could oh like, like I was, and I say, listen, listen, I, it was only Ouch. momentary. Okay. It was, it was like, I'm walking around that thing in tears going, it's right there. Like it was there, this emotional. Now don't get me wrong. I am. I, yeah, there you go. Okay. It's a, it's a thing of beauty. Now mm-hmm. I say that Adina. Okay. And so see, you're both Jamie massive, might not know. Is I work in the aerospace industry. Right. I work I, so. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's I say why, that yeah. I got over it, and I thoroughly I <clears throat> love our history in space. And Adina, you know I respect you and all you do for. He's, he's, he's got things, Jamie, that, that are flying millions of miles in outer space that she had her hands on. See, okay, that's cool. So it's. I'm afraid that is that is cooler than something which fictionally flew. By the way. There's the picture of Adam looking at me minutes after I made oh, that joke. No. <laughs> and you can see on He's his face. Me it's like, who I mean, oh. have, you, have you ever seen such side eye as, oh, as that? Oh, boy. goodness me. Anyway, oh. no, that, if see, Adam that, Nimoy that ever cool. listens to this, this is your apology. This is you, you, you know. I think we, we, had, we had a car ride to the airport afterwards, and I think it was fine. I think, cool. you know, he yeah. let, it was water under the bridge sure, by that yeah. point, but it was just yeah. in the moment. I think I kind of blew it. But that's, you know, that again, that's a very <laughs> British bumbling foot in mouth yeah. thing yeah. to do. So that's a great story, though. Um, yes. uh, can, can I, may I share with you, just you've mentioned please. working in the aerospace um, mm-hmm industry and this may be a story that you are aware of or others have heard before Mm. but space 1999 era when it was launching in the us uh dad was staying in a hotel i think in la again actually when they were kind of doing some press bits and pieces and he was staying somewhere maybe the the four seasons does that sound right mid 70s yeah that sounds like he would have stayed in the la area yeah there you go good i'm glad that sounds convincing i'm pretty sure it was the four seasons anyway he went down for breakfast one morning and the place was absolutely packed 
um, completely full, and he was waiting at the uh, the desk to be seated. A uh, guy came in behind him, and the the major d said, um, "Gentlemen, if you can sit together, I can see you right now. If you want single tables, I'm afraid you'll have to wait for a little bit longer." So they were like, oh, "Okay, I don't know who you are, but let's do it." They sat down, and the guy that um, Dad sat down with was, was was American, and they got chatting about what he was there for, and. Uh, Dad said, "I, you know, I don't know if you know the show, but it's Space 1999, and I'm doing a kind of press tour for it." Um, and his breakfast companion said, "Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen it actually. It's, it's pretty good. I really like it." Um, and, and he said, "Are you interested in space and, and technology generally?" Uh, and Dad said, "Oh yeah, absolutely." And um, basically, spent, I guess, the best part of half an hour telling this guy about all the stuff he knew about the space program and about the Apollo missions and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and they were eventually hurried away by the, the maitre d'. It's like, gents, are you done with your breakfast? Sorry, we've got to see more people. So as they were leaving, dad had spoken the whole time. <laughs> <clears throat> they decided to swap business cards. And the guy hands him his business card, uh, Captain Jim Lovell. Oh my oh, gosh. nice! I'm like, who is it going to be? Like, it can be like, there's like a bunch of people it could be. Which one's it going to be? Captain Jim Lovell. And dad said he felt like an inch tall because he'd been telling this guy all about the space program and how it works. And at one point, Jim Lovell had, had even been slightly mean to dad because dad said, I'm really hoping to see a launch. Um, and he said, have you ever seen a launch? And Jim said, no, I, I have actually been around for a few, but I've never seen one. <laughs> and so after the handing over the business card, dad said, I was, you. I was stuck mm. inside the spacecraft. Well, stuck exactly. inside or in Houston in mission control. Because a lot yeah. of you know astronauts work in mission control. You're in Houston. You're not at the launch. You know, you're not at the launch. Could have been um, either. Working. Exactly. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but Jim's, you know, said I. I wasn't lying. I never saw it because I was, yeah, I was kind of busy. I was elsewhere. Anyway, they they remained in touch for a long time. And dad had a letter from him on the oh, wall nice. saying, you know, I really enjoyed it. And if you ever need a science consultant, I'm your man. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, oh, it was fantastic. a lovely thing. But he, he always just said how how pathetically small he felt in that moment when the reveal was made. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. No, Lovell yeah. is great because of his his story is great. You know, the whole Apollo 13, like mm. successful failure. They got home safe. They, you know, it's just, uh, mm. I've always been amazingly impressed by that story. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I, I just, I said something to you, or one of the things I wrote uh, in our messages back and forth is that, you know, I, I, one of the saddest scenes in the movie Apollo 13 is where Lovell is looking out the window and he can see the moon. He says, I'm not going to get there. Mm-hmm. And but what they accomplished was even greater as the story of survival, yeah. of teamwork. I mean, and I, I I lived it. We we were in we were in in I was in middle school when Apollo thirteen happened, and everyone's going okay. Let's see, it was Apollo thirteen launched on a, April the thirteenth at thirteen hours and thirteen minutes, mm-hmm. and everything was just destined for failure. <laughs> and but it was just it was you know. Very, if you might even say very British, in that in <laughs> failure, like Dunkirk, greatness appeared. Yeah. Mm. You know, and you can look upon those failures and say, but look what came out of it, what success came out of that, you know, and that's wow. And I've seen Jim Lovell in interviews on TV and just an amazing person. And he must have been 
very charming to let your dad go on and on and on. I know. And, and go, oh, and by the way, baseball, yeah, I'm Sandy Koufax. I threw a pitch <laughs> once or twice in my life, you know? Yeah. Uh, amazing. I bet, I bet Lovell story. has us. I bet he told that story over and over again. I, I hope so. I like to think that is the yeah. case. Uh, but mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, Although, you know, yeah. again, it's it's that whole recognizability too. You know, they mm. even though at some point they're celebrities in some ways that they have a much easier time walking around and people mm -hmm. not necessarily recognizing their face, mm -hmm. especially after a few years past. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie, yeah. can I ask you, um, kind of switching gears here, is there yeah. is there anything up and coming or anything recent that mm. you would like to share with our audience that that we should check out and uh, keep on our radar. I mean, I can share many things. Uh, I, I don't want this to turn into a huge plugging sales pitch. Um, but sure. you know, if you are interested in anything, anything Jerry Anderson, then then yes, there is loads of stuff, and we try to make things <laughs> as a, appealing and as accessible as possible to as many fans mm. as possible. Uh, so I mean, from from the 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 looking back to the looking forward i guess even something like space 1999 uh we released it uh, the moonbase alpha technical operations manual a couple mm. of years ago which is mm -hmm. like your guide to living and working on alpha um nice. which is which has been incredibly popular we never could have imagined how popular that book mm. has been and that's been followed up with a ufo version and there's more uh, to be announced soon um, but equally I work with a company called Big Finish who do audio dramas of classic uh, shows and classic brands they've done a, a reimagining of Space 1999 on audio full cast audio dramas the same for UFO um, mm -hmm. we're doing audio dramas of, of Thunderbirds of Stingray there's even been a Fireball XL5 wow. um, vinyl out last year there are books there's new books coming there's comic anthologies um, <clears throat> even right through to new new stuff we released a, a free full cast audio drama podcast called First Action Bureau, which is Anderson related, um, but not directly from the past. Mm -hmm. um, had a great cast on that. Um, uh, very British names, but uh, Sasha Dewan and Patterson Joseph. Sasha Dewan is the, the master in the latest series of Doctor Who. Okay. Um, Nicola Walker, who's a, a, a lovely and fantastically talented um, actress this side of the pond. Uh, there's all sorts of other stuff brewing in the background, um, stuff that I can't quite talk about yet. Okay. But, we, you know, we, we quite often get requests for why isn't there, oh, this is an exclusive actually, why isn't there um, <laughs> a, a, an exhibition or a, a museum of Anderson stuff? So we're working to rectify that in a small way to start with. Um, there's an upcoming capsule exhibition for anyone listening in the UK. If you've got anyone in the UK at the Cartoon Museum. We hope here. you're listening in the UK. If you, well, if you aren't, uh, uh, well, then this is falling on deaf ears, but I hope you do and we'll post about it for our UK listeners. And of course, Thank we've you. got the Jerry, the Jerry Anderson podcast, which yes, we do weekly yes. and is, is nearly 250 episodes in, which seems absolutely wow. crazy to me. But we, uh, the, my favourite thing about that is it, it means we can speak to really interesting people. And you mentioned Parker earlier on, yeah, Steve. Yes. One of our guests was Dr. David Parker, not a name that you necessarily would know. He's the head of human and robotic space exploration for the European Space Agency. Mm. Try saying that after a few uh, gin and tonics. Um, Why we just say ESA? 
Yes. Okay. Fine. We'll say. I was saying that for the benefit of people who say Isa. What's that? Yeah. Uh, so no, that's, that's where you're supposed to always say out your acronyms. That's absolutely. Yep. So, but yeah, he's he's you know key man at Isa. Uh, he sent his Thunderbird three toy to the International Space oh, Station. Wow. Uh, and sent me back photos of that. Uh, he's a fascinating guy. He became interested in space because he watched an Addison show. He watched oh, um, a film called Doppelganger, which in the US was known as Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. Very good um, movie with Robert. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Dennis, I very, remember yeah, watching it. that on TV, being just amazed by it. Yeah. And then learning later, oh, my God, that was made by Jerry Anderson. That's yeah, even it was, special. It was his big push into, into a live action feature. Mm -hmm. um, but David Parker watched that as a kid, became fascinated with space, and is now in that role. And likewise, I mean, you know, we've I've met people at NASA Goddard and beyond who uh, work doing their thing because they became fascinated often by watching Space 1999. Mm -hmm. um, Alex Young, who I think is still the head of heliophysics at NASA Goddard, is a massive Eagle fan. He's wow. got an Eagle spaceship poster in his office wall at NASA. Mm -hmm. um, so on the on the podcast, we get to speak to these people, everyone from you know actors who worked in the shows, people who work behind the scenes, just celebrity fans, people who work in real space, science mm -hmm. advisors on movies, an amazing array of people. And I always, always learn something new from them because everybody's got their own view on why the shows were successful. And they all mean quite different things to different people. And learning about that is a very cool thing. That's fantastic. Well, that's a... we're, we're, of course, big <laughs> podcasting fans. I listen to a plethora of podcasts. Um, the Jerry Anderson podcast is next on my list, though. After this, I'm going to download it and make sure I'm listening to it. Um, Reg can get all caught up and all that. So we'll plug that too as well when this mm -hmm. episode comes out in a few weeks. <laughs> Thank and, you kindly. Um, also, I am thrilled to hear about the audio dramas. I I really get a kick out of mm -hmm. a good audio drama. Yep. Um, so I'm going to check that out too, and we'll make sure we have links to that on our podcast notes. That's fantastic oh, cool. uf ufo volume one ufo volume two has been announced um so there's there's so much audio stuff and we did a concert last year a live concert and the, the soundtrack yeah. and the dvd and blu-ray are out for that oh fantastic there's, there's, and, there's and so much stuff yeah and bringing cool. that up you know you know it's it's everyone talks about how great and we all do we love john williams as being one of the greatest sci-fi music composers of all time yeah but the work done by barry gray Oh, yes. And the music he did for all the series, it mm. is fantastic. And he did it all himself. Mm. And he, were, he was the composer for all the TV series and for the movies, right? I mean, uh, that's... So, yeah, he, he did every show from Four Feather Falls in 1959, which is a puppet western, uh, including <laughs> Supercar, Fireball, Stingray, Thunderbird, Scarlet, Joe 90, Secret Service, UFO, Space 19, 99, Year One. And then they they ended their creative collaboration, and Derek Wadsworth took over for year two, and then there are a few other composers through yeah. the rest of his career. But, but Barry, just just a genius, and we again we had access uh, on the podcast to his uh, sort of interviews with him, mm. and just to hear how kind of quiet and again self deprecating Barry was, and he, you know he would explain how he came up with Thunderbirds March, which is one of certainly over here oh the best God. known bits of TV music and <laughs> at our concert our host John Colshaw said if it had been composed a couple of hundred years earlier it would be our national anthem and I I believe oh, wow. that would be wow. the case yeah. but Barry talking about it he said 
oh, I was just sat on a train and the, the theme came to me, just popped into my head. <laughs> I mean, wow. Well, understated genius if ever there was one and and that's why that's that's what the great composers are understated mm. they, they they just it comes to them well i mean our dear friend mr brian here in square number one is a composer himself he writes his own music mm. he's talented that way stop and you're making just, me blush and, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll fix it up in post-production to take the blush out um <laughs> but it really is to to hear someone creates such great music mm -hmm. and how it was integral in the oh. part in into the the, yeah. the drama and the storyline and that's where like a john williams is has such creativity because you know you, you can you can listen to the 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 soundtrack from the first star wars film and it will be in your mind the image yep. of what's going on because the music is so compelling and the same thing applies when you hear the opening music or the the sound of uh the soundtrack of each one of the members getting into the various different thunderbirds mm. you can see it in your mind because the music follows it so well yeah. so what a great composer he was oh Absolutely. yeah the, the music is so integral into any iconic television show film mm. the music is a big part of what people remember and and yeah. just as a side note i remember hearing an interview with someone associated with the original Magnificent Seven film, you know, Yul Brenner mm -hmm. and, and Elmer Bernstein being the composer of that film. And I forget who it was. I can't remember who the interviewee was, but they said that film, which is an iconic Western, one of the greatest Westerns of all time ever made, said if you, that is actually a very slow film, but with that fantastic music, it gives it energy, it gives it drive, it moves the plot along even. And a great film score or television show score is tremendous to the success of that show. Um, Absolutely. So. Yeah. And, and, and the same thing applies. Those first few notes that you hear in the iconic Star Trek music <laughs> from the original right. series, when you hear like, dun, 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 you know right away what you're yeah. watching, you're going to see, and you just it pulls you in and that's really when you hear the drums in the opening of the of uh thunderbirds music yes. you know oh my gosh it's that military it, march time, oh, <laughs> yeah. it's time for excitement so it is uh, but it, it, it's it, i think for for any of these musings i often say i would rather listen to the soundtrack the you know the dialogue the effects and the music to an episode of thunderbirds than watch the picture and maybe the dialogue alone because the sound design and the music add so much. Mm -hmm. and, and Barry and John Williams and so many of those others, I think they're so good at creating music which is powerful enough to be a character in its own yes. right, really, yep. and and emphasising and underscoring what's going on on screen without overpowering. And that yeah. balance is so fine because it can so easily be, oh, I don't want to overpower it. And the music then becomes essentially kind of background sound design of its own but yeah but barry's music was like an additional character in there kind of almost narrating the the emotion the tension and so many of those cues just they mean a location mm. or they mean a piece of action mm -hmm. um it's 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 incredible really how how powerful and evocative those yeah. those scores are and they're so weird in so many ways there's you know they're sort of classical spanish influence they are big and kind of over the top for the scale of what's being delivered and yet they they enhance it and kind of bring up the visuals to match the scale of the music in many ways mm -hmm. it's, it's a magical combo
Very good. Um, any more questions from either your joke, the old well, I, peanut I would gallery? Only, I think the only thing I'm curious about is to, you know, what, you know, when, when you go home at the end of the day and, you know, take off work and whatever, what, what are you watching or reading? Oh, <laughs> okay. So I, I, I am a little bit of a workaholic. I mean, I'm at home now. My, my, mm -hmm. uh, this is my home office where I, I seem to live like 14, 16 hours a day. Um, so I often don't actually have any time to watch anything. Um, I and and my colleagues who I work with so often will say, "Oh, have you seen this?" And ninety five percent of the time, my answer is no because I just haven't had any time to watch it. <laughs> um, generally, I I, I I annoy people when I'm watching things because I will hmm. be watching it kind of ana analytically oh, or okay. mm -hmm. you know get guessing what a line's going to be or yeah. uh, you know just being being an idiot really um i have found a great level of escapism recently in small drum roll it's not really the, the, no it's a, it's a game show called Worst. the traitors ridiculously i don't know what if you've that? seen the traitors no. oh so there's a u.s version oh, yeah US we version might have a u.s version by, with a different name yeah but it's yeah. i've seen the u.s version too it's it's wonderful human drama but not over the top for reality tv so the u.s version is hosted by um alan cumming uh what, do you know what the name of the u.s one is it's called is the traitors oh, i believe okay. yeah i i can't tell you where you can watch it but something that's kind of escapist and not over the top overproduced over manufactured ridiculousness I, I think that is uh, it's quite a nice way to escape everything sci-fi. I know we're on a sci-fi podcast here. No, it's okay. But sometimes we talk about things that are not sci-fi. Oh, yeah. Often <laughs> we're we're off. You're so often stuck in stuff. I've just tried the Rig, the big Amazon uh, show again. It might be more UK based. I I couldn't quite get on with that. I have I've to be, heard I have a couple of friends of mine have recommended that. I, I've okay, been, well, yeah, I haven't please watched don't it let yet. Me, but, I'm not yeah. countering their recommendations. Yeah. I'm just saying I, I, I really, I struggle mm -hmm. to really uh, to dive into that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, in terms, of, in terms of sci-fi, I'm really letting the side down. I have to say, I'm looking forward to watching new, new Doctor Who when the specials come out later this year under the under Russell T Davis returning and kind of re envisioning it in his way. Um, so, do yeah. you watch Star Trek? So it's okay if you don't. It's okay. If I you do. Don't. I, okay. So back, back, back in the nineties, um, BBC Two, our kind of second main public broadcast channel, it, they had sci-fi cult evenings during the week. So you had Thunderbirds and um, Stingray and Captain Scarlet and Next Generation, which was my mm -hmm. Star Trek because that I was first introduced to it. Mm -hmm. um, Man from Uncle um mm -hmm. it, it was just a, an amazing kind of uh sci-fi fest in those evenings so for, for me next generation was my big thing mm -hmm. and so i have enjoyed picard i haven't touched the, the third series yet uh i enjoyed discovery i know there mm -hmm. are some things which some people have kind of find contentious to some degree uh, yeah there you go so i'm not gonna <laughs> get too involved but in a, in a i'm you know i'm not a, a massive star trek nerd in the same way as i'm a doctor who nerd mm -hmm. so I, I will be much more invested in in doctor who and therefore i'll probably be more critical of stuff i see there mm -hmm. star trek i can i kind of get a light nostalgic vibe which is why i'm mm -hmm. looking forward to mm -hmm. picard cool. um with stuff coming back there so yes but no, no i'm a next gen baby cool as our, as our two our two mm -hmm. esteemed guests whereas i watched i watched star trek from the day one when it first came out in 1966 and you know, for me, it was like 
this is smart science fiction. This isn't, you know, lost in space with intelligent carrots and monster of the week and things like that. This was, this was storytelling mm. that just happened to have been about science fiction. And that yeah. was, the, that's what makes Star Trek so great. And, you know, thank goodness we had people like Eugene Roddenberry who came up with this idea. We're lucky that your dad was around to come up with these puppet shows that made them real life stories about, mm. you know, and of rescuing people, you know, people I met people. Thunderbirds is international rescue. These are people whose job was to save the lives of other people in desperate situations. And that's really the great storyline that we'd love to hear. And it was all inspired, I think, again, because someone was trapped in a, a well. There was a, a, a you're, you're downplaying it there, Steve. I'm uh, sorry. I'm ten, sorry. Tens <laughs> of miners <laughs> trapped deep underground in a that German mine after the collapse of a lake. Yes, yeah, it's called the Le the Lenged mining disaster. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Happened in 1962. There's quite a lot of stuff online about it, but yeah, yeah it's but it's a it's a, a fascination with real world issues, real world problems, which drives mm -hmm. you to create fantastical fictional solutions. I, and I think again, that's where Gene Roddenberry and Dad kind of aligned. There, yeah. it's mm -hmm. here are some problems we see now. Uh, whether whether that be something like even race, racism being as being something that they they both tackled in their own ways, mm -hmm. um, they saw a problem in the present, and then cast it into a future where they could they could fix it in a kind mm -hmm. of in a fictional area where you watch it and go oh okay, mm -hmm. um, and again we and I did a podcast a couple of years ago on September the thirteenth, which is Breakaway Day, the day that the moon blows out of Earth's orbit in in nineteen ninety nine. Um, <laughs> I didn't we'll keep that day in our minds now. You must always look at the sky that night, just in case. But uh, we, I did an interview with uh, Samira Ahmed and Kevin Fong, who are two um, journalists uh, uh, over here. And um, they both said, watching Space 1999 growing up, they were like, oh, I could do this. As someone who is not white mm. and not like everybody else I see around me, I'm seeing myself on screen. That's 1975. Wow. You go back mm -hmm. to yeah. the Angels in Captain Scarlet in 1967. You've got an all-female team of fighter pilots, uh, uh, all mix of, of ethnicities, of, of races. And even going back into Supercar, uh, 1960, 61, there, there was such a variety of ethnicity, not not dealt with 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 any subtlety or you know, especially by today's standards. But Dad was trying to include characters, which even the distributors were saying, "No, you got to cut that out." Mm. They, you know, they had they had to cut characters of color out of wow. Supercar mm. at the behest of distributors. But they were they were seeing this is this is not kind of fair. And I, I, I'm sure that would have been a fantastic, really interesting element of that conversation between Dad, Gene, and the whiskey. <laughs> absolutely well thank you so much any other questions or have we uh this has been fun yeah it's been so much fun it i'm really talked to death now so uh... no no we... I'm, I'm i'm you know i gotta go clean my house after this uh so this is the most fun of my day right here right here besides playing with my kiddos of course but, well but, you know winning the competition between uh myself and housework mm -hmm. uh brian well that is the most <laughs> yeah. the most flattering thing i'm gonna and hear I, today you know, so you thank know you. i really do enjoy cleaning my house too i am oh, okay. on here i i might listen I to the jerry now. anderson podcast while i'm cleaning my house but, <laughs> you've uh, had enough of me for one day i'm sure <laughs> thank you sir all right well then i'm gonna close by saying jamie 
thank you for your time with the Big Sci-Fi Podcast. Fans of science fiction owe a debt to your family for creating such an iconic collection of TV series and movies. Even if you were not a starry-eyed kid in the 1960s, as I was, who had no idea that there were only 32 episodes of Thunderbirds, because I watched them over and over and over again, and these shows made a real difference. So thank you to you, to your family, for having produced these wonderful, wonderful shows. But I believe we've taken up enough of your time, Jamie, due to the time zone differences. It is about tea time in London, so let us bid you farewell to our, our very good friend. And to the listeners of this recording, please look up the series and the movies of Jerry and Sylvia and subscribe to Anderson Entertainment website and to his podcast as well. Because these are all things that are truly FAB. As always, please subscribe to our Facebook page and our YouTube page and send us your thoughts and your feelings uh, either th through the through the Facebook page or through our email address of big sci-fi podcast at email.com, which is where we met Jamie. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> it's how we connect, how we connected with you. Listen and as me. always, I leave you with this parting thought. Look to the skies, live long and prosper. <laughs>